0: Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings.
1: Welcome to a special episode of the Avenues History Podcast. I'm here recording in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, please don't ask, just outside a coal mine exhibit, which has absolutely nothing to do with our topic at hand. What is our topic at hand? Well, we have a special interview with Dr. George Knight, who is a church history professor, uh, Adventist church history, that is, at Andrews University for many years, has written many books, and it's a good place to start. If you want to learn more about Adventist history, Dr. Knight, welcome to our program. Thank you. good to be here. We have two kinds of people listening to this Adventist history podcast. The most obvious kind of people are Adventists who want to know a little bit more about their origin story. Why should Seventh-day Adventists take the time to read a book or listen into the podcast to know their history a little better?
0: Well, I think of the quotation in Life Sketches that we have nothing to fear for the future except we should forget uh, God's leading in our past history. Uh, Identity is crucial. Why do people belong to religious movements? Hmm. But some some people just born that way I don't think that's satisfactory mm-hmm. uh, why should I dedicate to myself to, to something that doesn't have validity uh, I think we should understand our history because our history tells us who we are and why we became the way we are and when you look at Adventist history of course the why is definitely tied to scripture and so our history tells us who we are how we got to be this way and why, why we ought to stick around.
1: All right. So, if we want to find out why we eat haystacks at Potluck on Sabbath afternoon, will our history tell us about that one too? Uh, certainly
0: an esoteric part of history. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: not, 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 the, not the history that I write. Yeah. But delve
0: into that
1: kind of thing. Well, at the, at the general conference session, you know, they try to set that world record or the Guinness record for the world's biggest haystack. I don't. Right. I don't think they got it, but I'm sure they'll try again. <laughs> and if our listeners don't know what a haystack is, um, well, if you go visit an Adventist church on some Sabbath, it won't take long before you'll be acquainted with it. Some people call it a taco salad, but um, that's heresy. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that in an Adventist church. It's a haystack.
0: Well, maybe I'll Google
1: it after we're finished. There we go. Well, that brings us to our. Uh, second type of people who might be listening to this this podcast is accessed through itunes and there's a lot of people who listen to a lot of things in itunes so some of our listeners may not be avenists they just may be a member of another faith or no faith and they may have just stumbled across this and say hey i know an Avenist. i'm kind of curious about uh, what they might believe what their history is what their story is why might Avenist history be valuable for other christians or even non-christians uh, to know a little bit more about how this church was founded
0: let me uh, put it a personal perspective because I hadn't been an Adventist, I was agnostic. And when I was 19 years old, I became interested in the Adventist church. And interestingly enough, I got into it through the avenue of history. Hmm. Uh, and uh, not a history book, but a book about prophecy called The Great Controversy, which deals with history all the way from the time of uh, the apostles clear up until the end of time, and uh, so I kind of had an historical introduction uh, to what I can put, I've dedicated my life now to it, I've been an Adventist minister for about 50, 51 years, and uh, I uh, I find the history to be a fascinating piece, a subset of American history. Mm. And, uh, of course, with the now worldwide movement, what what is the Adventist, something like the fifth largest uh, Christian body in the world, I think I may be off one or two digits there. Sure. Uh, uh, How how the Adventist Church became a worldwide movement is a fascinating historical development, Mm -hmm. uh, let alone some of the peculiarities of why Adventists are different from others. I remember, uh, I think the first time my dad who was a pork salesman, but he also sold cheese. And I remember one time he said, uh, do you want to see a vegetarian? I'd never heard of a vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) He said, well, there's a bunch of adventists over in this hospital that don't eat meat. And uh, I was really fascinated by that whole concept because this was before the hippie generation and vegetarianism came in. And I expected to see a bunch of pale little creepy creatures Kind of just crawling around, you know. like, How could you live if you didn't eat big doses of meat every day? All right. And uh, anyway, I went there and I was pleasantly surprised. But how did these people get these strange habits? Saturday, no, a uh, uh, modern prophet, dietary issues that uh, are widely practiced in the church. I mean, put it, I was going to write a book on having this last book but Called becoming peculiar. Uh, <laughs> peculiar has two meanings. One means uh, strange, and some avenues are strange. Uh, but uh, the other meaning is precious, and uh, precious in God's eyes. Uh, and uh, it's just kind of a fascinating thing to me of how these people came to who they are, to be who they are.
1: Yeah. It is really one of uh, the few truly uh, American religions in terms of its origin, uh, and and it often gets confused with some of the other the others, you know, uh, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or something. So it's, I it's it's, it's yeah.
0: The names get confusing by themselves.
1: Right. So maybe learning a little history would help people differentiate when someone ever knocks on their door. You know, they they kind of know who they're dealing with rather than lumping them all together.
0: Yeah, and of course, uh, uh, people know less about Adventists because our history is not quite as glamorous, you know what I mean. We uh, never had to deal with, dealt with polygamy or uh, uh, Indian massacres or whatever. We're um, <laughs> uh, our, 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 our pretty much more uh, mainline.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, we, we started our podcast uh, just kind of at the beginning, did some background to 1844, and honestly I don't know of another uh, religion or another Christian denomination that has their origin in something that is a great disappointment. I mean in being wrong about something. What do you think it means? How did it shape this movement to come out of such a, a catastrophic uh, failure in the sense of thinking Jesus was going to come on October 22nd, 1844 and being wrong? Like how did that shape this this church, this movement? Well,
0: the whole Christian movement started in the Great Disappointment. Hmm. Uh, the Disciples expected Christ to become a king and conquer the Romans, and he got crucified by the Romans. Uh, and that was an earth-shaking development. I think we need to see the whole uh, beginning of Christianity in terms of a massive, massive disappointment that uh, uh, once again is rooted in prophecy. Uh, if you take a look at the of Daniel chapter 9. But uh, Adventists were also um, birthed from their origin in a Great Disappointment in 1844 when they expected Christ to come a second time. I, I think probably the most important aspect of that is it roots Adventist, Adventism in prophetic history particularly as one takes a look at the opening of a little book uh, in Revelation 10 that is the little book that, the little book of prophecy that had been sealed in uh, Revelation uh, excuse me, Daniel 12, 4 and of course one day, um, parts of the parts of Daniel that been sealed is Daniel 8, uh, 14 right like, uh, Daniel 8, 16 has been sealed for many and of course the
1: uh,
0: so I, I think that Adventists are best seen as a prophetic movement, and uh, the disappointment, just like Christianity, is a is a prophetic movement. Christianity in general, both the the, uh, the first coming of Christ and the predicted unfortunately falsely predicted uh, date of 1844 are both rooted in the prophecies of Daniel. And this roots us in history and gives us a prophetic uh, perspective, particularly as you follow through after Revelation 10 and see what must be preached again to all the world after the bitter experience of uh, when the little book was opened, the Mm -hmm. book of Daniel.
1: Hmm. This uh, it definitely, we were looking in the early episodes of the podcast at how hungry the the founders, the early Adventists, were to figure out what happened in 1844. Right. I mean, we we saw the different ways that, that people left the disappointment. You know, some went into the extremes, and they were spiritualizers and uh, all of that. But but these early Adventists were hungry to figure out exactly what happened and uh, that's something it seems like it'd be very dangerous to lose.
0: Yes, yes, particularly because uh, the spinoffs of Adventism there came out uh, several denominations, all of them gave up their concept of prophetic scripture Uh, and uh, when they did that they lost their identity and basically just disappeared. Mm. Uh, Mm. So it's it's this understanding of going back to scripture. Okay, were we right where did we go wrong? What? Where do we go from here? And of course, uh, for the early evidence, as you've already discussed in your podcast, I imagine, it was hey, what is the sanctuary? And what comes after Revelation 10? Or what comes after Daniel 8? And so the continuing study of Scripture became absolutely central to that group that uh, maintained its uh, identity in terms of prophecy.
1: Hmm. One of the last things that we talked about in the podcast was um, this general conference in 1855 where jan andrews was studying out exactly when the sabbath began and end you know is it the 6 p.m to 6 p.m thing or we're we going to do sundown to sundown and what's interesting is in his article in the review uh he denies that he was influenced by the messenger party you know in coming to this conclusion I don't think we're exactly sure what they wrote, but it it seems that they were perhaps giving Adventists some trouble over the 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. markers for the Sabbath. Uh, But what's really interesting is he makes this case, Andrews makes this case, that one of the things that is part of Adventist DNA is that when we go back to the Bible and realize we were wrong about something, that we're not hesitant to go back and correct it. It, And it seems really vital... uh, to Andrews that that this be a part of who we are right they were so afraid of creeds they were afraid of locking in beliefs and saying well we already made them if they're wrong they're wrong we can't change them but yeah. being flexible to me that seems like something uh, that probably was carried over from the great disappointment this idea that we have this moment where we were really wrong and we went back to the scriptures and figured out what happened and we got to be able to continue to be able to do that if we're ever wrong in the future
0: Yes, and of course that's written into the fundamental beliefs of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Uh, the preamble is the most important part. which says, when um, according to Bible study we come to these conclusions, uh, and have studied it uh, and, uh, as a you know uh, a broad based Bible study, that uh, the uh, the uh, definitions uh, conclusions can be modified to meet the Bible evidence.
1: Yep. Yeah, it is. So
0: that's what separates it from a, a creed.
1: Right. And they are changed. They're changed routinely here, you know, minor changes here and there, and sometimes big ones. Absolutely.
0: course, yep. some 70s, they haven't
1: used it like
0: a creed, but that's because they forget the prehum.
1: Right. <laughs> We've been, uh, in the mid-1850s, as we talked about, one of the... Interesting parts that I didn't know that much about before we started the podcast was the disagreement between Joseph Bates and James White on the issue of publishing around the late 1840s, early 1850s. Joseph Bates thought that James uh, perhaps was misusing his time and talents and so on by focusing on publishing and not uh, hitting the circuit as much.
0: Well, no, that's not exactly true. They both wanted to publish. But Bates wanted to publish little books. Right. And uh, he felt that James White uh, was doing all right to publish periodicals, which is what James wanted to publish. Uh, But when it got to be a permanent periodical, he said, you're becoming just like the other churches. You think we're going to be around here forever because you're going to establish a permanent periodical. And we should be dumping the money into evangelism right now because Jesus is going to come immediately. Right. so that's where the difference
1: really came. Where,
0: do, where are you going to put your, your scarce
1: dollars? Right. That's interesting because, you know, a regularly published paper is going to end up gaining some degree of authority over the community, right? Because not everyone's voice can be, can be heard, right? Whoever is editing that paper right. is going to be the loudest voice in the room. Uh-huh. And thankfully, it's James White and, and a pretty level-headed guy, a very good writer... You can see in his articles very clear, especially when he gets to the youth's instructor. Which his first Sabbath School uh, articles in there, I think, were some of the clearest expositions, beautifully written, uh, wonderful. So, how do you think this would have gone? I mean, we we know that George and James, uh, excuse me, Joseph and James were absolutely committed to the mission of church, and maybe that's part of the glue that kept this. Uh, disagreement from becoming something uh, bigger or permanent. But what would the implications be? If they would have parted ways there, 1849, 1850, what do you think the implications would have been for the church?
0: It probably would have destroyed the movement. Uh, The movement only had uh, two real leaders at that time. Um, And uh, Bates had been the major theological guide up to that time. But with the, as you alluded to, With the um, coming of the Review and Herald, as it was called, uh, James, as the editor, became the foremost uh, public voice in the church. And what we need to realize is there was no Seventh Day Adventist church. There was just a loosely group, a loosely allied group of people. And for the next uh, 12 years, until 1863 or so. Uh, at least 1861, from, from 1851, the Review and Herald was the denomination. It was the church. People didn't have pastors in most cases, uh, and uh, this, was, this was what held the movement together. Hmm. And, of course, it gave James White, that was the transfer of power. And uh, that was part of the problem between Bates and uh, White. Uh, This was the first transition of power between the leadership and the movement. That is the formal leadership.
1: Yeah. And what about Ellen White during this time? Obviously, she's around in 1851, I think it was. James decided not to publish her visions in the Review for very understandable reasons, you know, wanting people to realize we came to our beliefs just from the Bible and not from visions. Uh, but what, was she kind of taking a back seat in these years? What was her role?
0: Yeah, she never, uh, it, it, once again, uh, it's easy to read history backwards and put her at the center. Uh, she really wasn't at the center. Uh, all of our doctrines were developed through Bible study. All of our, uh, what we call the peculiar doctrines, Sabbath, Sanctuary, State of the Dead, uh, all of these were developed by non adventists No doctrine was ever developed by Ellen White. Not even the Great Controversy idea. Uh, those all came out of Scripture. Uh, her large, largest role early on was that of confirmation, uh, confirming Bible study. But also, she had a steadying hand. You folks, okay, we're on the path. Don't get nervous out there. And uh, and of course, there was. Uh, a lot of, because of the radical um, fringe of Millerism, there were some people that had some really strange attitudes and strange behaviors, and Ellen White definitely came in uh, uh, to guide the church away from some of these extremes. And so she's kind of a steadying hand and a confirming hand, but she didn't have the dominant role that many people in the 20th century would have
1: given yeah. yeah, you're right, those visions that she got in the 1840s seem to always come after a group had been meeting together to pray and read the Bible, and usually it's it's at the end to kind of confirm this is this is the right interpretation of these texts, you know, we're on the right course.
0: Yeah, and according to Ephesians uh, 4, uh,
1: about verses
0: uh, 15 or so, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there, uh, it says the function
1: of the uh, gift of prophecy is to bring unity in the faith yeah and speaking of disunity uh we just covered the messenger party uh the story of the origin of the messenger party is his i don't know maybe we're just far enough away from the event that it is not really a threat anymore it's humorous to me i mean this misunderstanding this um i guess this willfulness of these two people who enjoyed it when ellen white uh Corrected the other side, but when when their side of the disagreement was being corrected, they they declared that she was no longer an authentic prophet and uh, started this paper, the yeah. Messenger of Truth, against it. Now we only have. Correct me if I'm wrong. We only have like three copies of the Messenger of Truth, right? The rest we have in the review. Uh, just I'm
0: not sure how many we have. I know that when
1: uh, Theodore leftorov
0: uh, did his doctoral dissertation, he discovered several copies. I know no, he's discovered at least three. I'm not sure what other ones we have, because for a long time all the church had was um, the re- opposition. Yeah,
1: right, the review articles. We said,
0: we said that, well, now we have at least three Yes, yeah, They've been discovered some 10, 12 years now.
1: Yeah. What kind of made up the messenger party? What, what did they want? What were they all about?
0: Well, basically, uh, they were
1: against
0: Ellen White's visions. Um, and, of course, they later joined with other people uh, uh, to form a, a larger group. And it, it never really held together. So you have the Messenger Party, which is really very transient. But they they focused on what they were against. And
1: what mainly they were against was Ellen White. Now, did they see themselves, do you think, as... Uh maybe like an early Adventist reform movement? Because they didn't seem to renounce Sabbath, per se, or or the other distinctives. Was it just that they just wanted to get this one element, uh, Ellen White and her, her prophetic gift, out of the church? Did they want to save the church from itself?
0: Yes, uh, but they also, uh, you know, not, not the early messenger movement, but in these early dissident movements, uh, was also the leadership of James White. They, they were Somewhat anti-organizational,
1: too. Yeah. Well, I know that it was. A, that's a big uh, issue that we're running into uh, here in the 1850s. You know, the church grew leaps and bounds from from 1849 to you know 1852 or 53. Yeah. I think something from a few hundred to a few thousand. You know, and
0: very, very, very rapid, very rapid growth.
1: Yeah. And I'm encouraged by this this kind of wariness of organization because it didn't. You know, we see that James White and company didn't set out to say we're going to create this massive structure. It was—it it always seemed to emerge from the needs of the moment. You know, like we got a problem now. How are we going to deal with this?
0: Yeah, and it really wasn't so much of a problem. But how can we carry on our mission? Right, and that's what's—that's uh, what's important, I think. How can we best do missions? And what kind of organization did it take in 1850 to do it? What kind of organization did it take in 1901 to do it when they reorganized? And what kind of organization did it take today? Because the North American Division is a re-evaluating the whole structure, particularly whether we need the conferences and unions and, uh, as many layers. Yeah, I, I think that this is absolutely crucial, not only... Are uh, the fundamental beliefs belief flexible, but the organization itself is a, is is flexible in terms of what is the best way to accomplish mission, and that's crucial. That's why that's why the organization came up. Yeah. Without the organization, you only have a bunch of individuals or congregations uh, that kind of do their own thing, but there's no way to. Free. Free. Uh, this
1: oh, free. Free. Right. right. And I apologize uh, for our listeners. I am in the museum, I remind you, so occasionally people walk by. I can't hide in the closet somewhere. Um, now, one of the things is, I feel like if we had a time machine and James and Ellen White or Joseph Bates, any of the original crew could be brought today. Uh, it seems to me that oftentimes Adventists are very fond of, of quoting Ellen White or James or somebody. Me personally, I'm okay with that, but I'm terrified if they were here today because I, I feel like they would, they would beat us up and down. I mean, these people didn't care about their 401K. You know, I mean, they sacrificed their health. You know, we, we talked about them in, in, with the review in Rochester and how they worked, you know, and they would use the awl to, to perforate the book. They would have to sew the binding on themselves. I mean, these guys worked hard. They had no care about their future comfort or security. Joseph Bates had something like, what, $10,000, you know, in in money back then that he spent.
0: He had enough to retire
1: in perpetuity. Yeah.
0: I mean, we don't think of $10,000 as much today, but that was enough to fund his retirement.
1: Yep. So, whatever that number would be today, it would be in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. You know, whatever it is, you could look at your bank account and say, you know what, I'll be comfortable. You know, maybe not rich, but I'm comfortable. I'll be fine. You know, to spend that much money. So, today, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's notoriously difficult to figure out how much money in the past is worth today, but it was a lot of money. And these people sacrificed everything to keep this movement going.
0: That's right. And it, to get it
1: started. <laughs> yeah, to get it started, right? It takes less work today. Uh, but it, it's to me that's terrifying because I think if these guys were around today, they'd look at us all as the sorry as bunch of sops. You know, I mean to.
0: It's all part of the sociological aging process. This is a uh, you take a look at the sociology of religion. A movement when it starts out gives no guarantees of a salary, gives no vacation, no retirement. I mean, you're in it because you believe it, and you believe it so much that you're willing to die for the movement. That was the early church, that was the reformation, that was the wandering movement, that was the early Adventist movement. But there's there's a sociological development that says, hey, if we're going to keep this thing together, we're going to have to help people uh, know that they've got some security. Hmm. And when you get the security, you've got people coming in for the wrong reasons. They no longer may love the movement. They may or may not. But you've got stages here. And in the second stage, you've got a, you know, a whole lot of people that really love the movement, they're thankful for the security. But down the track, you get people that are just out for the bread. Yeah. They're just out for the. They're just out for the security, and uh, that, that they may or may not be believers anymore. And this is how a church or a movement secularizes. Mm. And it, it happened in the early church. It happened in the Reformation. It happened in Wesleyanism. And unfortunately, we can see Adventism moving through those same stages. I've written about this in several places. Mm. Um, Mm. It's a very frightening thing, but I don't know of any movement, a Christian movement or otherwise, that hasn't faced the aging process that goes through very definite sociological steps.
1: Mm. What do you think a solution might be? How do we keep the fire alive? How do we keep flexible and, and young, so to speak, and not kind of ossify and grow rigid.
0: Well, Leslie worried about that he said, earn all you can, give all you can.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're not
0: the first people who have been concerned about this, but it, it really means a clear-sighted vision of who I am as, let's say, a minister or a teacher or an administrator, no longer doing it for power, no longer doing it for merely security. But doing it because uh, I believe totally, and I want to give my life to this movement, uh, and of course uh, that can only be brought about by the Holy Spirit, and it's not done with total movements; it's done with individuals. Uh, it's, the, it's the power of the Spirit that we need in a continual way, uh, and a form of honesty that uh, traditionally. Doesn't always exist in aging movements, and that is okay. Yeah, I don't really believe, so I'm gonna, you know. I mean, I had a guy tell me one of my classmates years ago. He says uh, he was a minister of a very large church. He says I don't believe some of this stuff anymore. He says, but I'm too late now, and my retirement's tied up in this. Mercy. You got the idea? Yep. How how do you do this? No movement is no movement in the history of Christianity has figured out how to avoid the aging process yet. However, unlike physical aging, the uh, aging of a church is um, theoretically able to be reversed.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, But theoretical and actualities are two different things. But it's something that we need to keep in mind in our own day. Not to be critical of others, but to say, hey, I don't want to fall into that pit. I want to be a part of the solution and give all I can and not just out of the, uh, the church. Uh, it's uh, white
1: blood. Yeah. And again, I really think looking deeper into our own Adventist history, uh, even to the Reformation, to the early church, is beneficial. I and mean, when you see what these guys paid, what they suffered, what it cost them uh, for us to be where we are right now, I, I think it can't help but inspire one with some gratitude, with some more appreciation uh, for the movement that we're a part of. That's a
0: good reason. to
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Final question. Which of these pioneers would you like to meet, and what questions would you have for them? Maybe just one or two.
0: Okay. I'd like to meet Miller. Uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to tell him, uh, I'd like to ask him, why didn't you see the heavenly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary? <laughs> in the book of Hebrews, I mean, it's right there on you know, the Simple. Uh, why did, if you saw the sweetness of Revelation ten when the little book of Daniel was open, why did you see that it would be bitter? Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to meet James White. I'd like to say, what was it like to live with
1: the prophets? Yeah. Right.
0: I mean, I know that sometimes we was not all together happy, but
1: You're right? <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's, it's bad enough to wake up with
0: a my wife says, I got a message for you right
1: right right well sometimes I think my wife thinks she's a prophet too so uh, <laughs> oh but it's true that would be an interesting that would be an interesting situation but it doesn't it, you know it seems that uh, even there that the marriage grew out of a convenience for mission. Uh, they were both on the same track, and so, hey, you know, let's not let people talk as we take carriage rides around New England. Let's, let's get married, and we can do more together than we can as separate.
0: I always say that marriage of James and was the first step in the institutionalization of Adventism permission.
1: There you go. There you go. Well, that's all the time we have today. I appreciate this, Dr. Knight, joining us for our special edition of the Adventist History Podcast. And, um, From wherever we all are, we send our greetings to Oregon. Okay. All right. God bless you, sir. And we'll see you you around. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye now.